Well, Pastor Brock had emailed me, said, hey, uh, can you come preach in this Habits of Grace series we're doing, and uh, could you do something on discipleship? I have this really cool, fancy title at the church. It's Pastor of Leadership Development and Discipleship. Uh, Sounds really cool. It's really not. Uh, It just means I spend a lot of time with people, some people helping them uh, become leaders, other people just surviving another day. But I've thought of discipleship for almost two decades now, and I've read every book there is to read. I've practiced all these different ways. And so when Pastor Brock says, do something on discipleship, I'm like, what do I do in 30, 35 minutes or so that would have some kind of impact? And we know the Word of Christ. It's going to have an impact by the Spirit of God. But what can I say that's helpful and important? Well, I came to Galatians 6 because over and over again, with the backdrop of all the methodologies of discipleship, how you should and shouldn't do it, all these different opinions, I think that it's a lot more simple and yet more difficult in regards to the way Paul explains it in Galatians 6. On the heels of Galatians 5, which is about being filled with the Spirit and having the fruit of the Spirit, all these beautiful gifts that God is working in and through us, then comes Galatians 6, and it's this important and yet absolutely difficult part of discipleship called bearing one another's burdens. So let me read that text again. It says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now here's the reality of our lives. No matter how much we all love Jesus and love one another, we will sin. That's an inescapable reality, this side of the new heavens and new earth. The church itself is a group of forgiven sinners doing their best by the power of the indwelling spirit to follow Jesus day in and day out. Now, while all followers of Jesus are these new creations, that our hearts of stone have been removed and replaced with these hearts of flesh that can actually believe and follow and love Jesus and his people, as Paul argues over and over in Romans 5 through 8, there is still this battle going on inside of us. Part of us loves Jesus. We're so committed. We're saying, I'm, I do not want to sin. I hate my sin. I love Jesus. I want to honor him. And then two minutes later, we commit some grave sin and we can't believe we've done it again. Now, what does this mean for those of us in the church? We, some of us often come to the church thinking, okay, the world out there, that's the evil place. So we're going to come to the church and everything will be right there. And if you've been a part of the church more than three minutes, you know you're going to sin against others and you're going to be sinned against. It's, it's inescapable. So the question I want to ask today from our text is, what do we do when we catch someone else in their sin? What do we do when another brother or sister is caught in sin? This is what Paul 
is trying to deal with towards the end of the letter of Galatians. And I think for most of us, we respond to catching a brother or sister in sin in one of two ways. So let's look at those two ways. The first one, for some of us, when we become aware of someone else's sin, we ignore it. Right? We, we might say, well, 1 Peter 4.8 says love covers a multitude of sins, so I just want to love them. So I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to point it out. I just want to, I'm just going to love. So instead of actually confronting the sin, we ignore it. We sweep it under the rug and act as if it doesn't exist. Now, part of this reason might be because we've experienced those self-righteous type Christians who come and point out our sin if they've been angry and hurtful towards us, and we don't want to be like that. And so we pendulum swing the other way, and we'll say, well, Jesus is dealing with it, so I'm not going to say a thing about it. I, I, I love them. If this is your tendency, you're not alone. Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 2.14, and this is even heightened a bit because it's talking to the prophets who were supposed to be the mouthpiece of God. He says, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. You see that phrase in the middle there, I want you to notice the two things that are connected. They have not exposed your iniquity, right? So they haven't called it out for what it is. And the penalty of that is that their fortunes were not restored. And so there's some kind of real connection that we're supposed to see that when our sin is called out, we are actually restored. When we sweep the sins of others under the rug, it's actually selfish. It's careless, and it's not loving that person. When Jesus was about to leave his disciples after his three years of ministry and ascend to heaven, he gave this practical command, probably the most famous or well-known passage on discipleship. He looks at his disciples and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice that phrase in there, under the authority of the Father and the Son of the Spirit, discipleship is done. But then this phrase of how it's to be done, right after baptism, you start to teach people, those who you're discipling, to obey all that Jesus commanded. And so when we catch a brother or sister in sin and we ignore it and don't teach them to obey and to follow Jesus, we're actually affirming their rebellion towards him. We're saying it's okay. Jesus Jesus loves you and your rebellion. In our text this morning, Paul says in Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual should restore him. Notice that Paul's calling us to restore, not ignore. That rhymes, that's free, you could take that one home. Restore, not ignore. I don't do that kind of thing in sermon, it just happened this week. That that word restore in the original language, it's where we get our English word cauterize. It's to, to put together something that is broken. To fix that which is not correct. 
A few years back, uh, we had a friend who, he, he was pulling up to the church, and he rode a motorcycle, and uh, he was completely innocent in the matter, but a, a lady T-boned him on his motorcycle, and he ended up on the pavement, blood all over the place, and had a bone sticking out of his leg, full compound fracture. Now imagine with me if when the ambulance had taken him to the hospital, uh, they bring him into the doctor's office, and the doctor comes and says, man, I see that bone sticking out of your leg. That must, that must hurt. But we love our patients at this hospital, and love doesn't cause pain, so I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to set that bone, but we have a lot of gauze at this hospital. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to make it really nice, and then I'm going to send you home, but make sure you tell all your friends. Make sure you do the Yelp interview thing, and, and make sure you tell everyone we are a hospital that loves our patients. If that was your leg, you'd be screaming, get me another doctor, right? This is malpractice. That is not what a doctor does. In the same way, when we don't call out someone in the midst of their sin and help them see exactly what it is and what it causes, we're lacking love and truth. Now, there's a second way we typically respond to catching others in sin. Rather than sweeping it under the rug, some of us in here like to condemn those people and make clear how serious their sin is. We show this by when we catch them, we get bitter, we get frustrated. We believe deep down we know what's best for them, and if they would just listen to us, Jesus would be pleased with them. We make clear that they should not commit such a sin because not only does it offend God and His glory, but that they deserve to be shamed and guilted into repentance. So in response, you pile on guilt and shame over and over to make them feel the seriousness of what they've done. In this scenario, the doctor would see the bones sticking out of the leg and would make the patient understand the seriousness of what has happened. He might come in and say, you see that bone? Look at it for a bit. Look at it. You see all that blood? It's terrible, isn't it? Do you realize what you've done? This will teach you to ride a motorcycle. What the doctor's doing here is pointing out the problem and failing to offer a solution. And when we confront sin this way, the doctor does, in the same way the doctor does, it shows an absolute lack of love because it calls something what it is without giving a way forward. And part of restoration is giving a brother or sister a way forward. Now, I was trying to think about this this week and wonder, why is it that we respond these two ways, typically? And I think the reason we respond one of these two ways, or if you're schizophrenic like me, you do both, it's because we ourselves are really quick to forget the good news of the gospel. Although we may say we believe the gospel and might be able to recite that it's the power of God unto salvation, the truth is that our response to others' sins exposes what we truly believe about the gospel. 
Think about that. This is what Paul has in mind in Galatians 6.3 when he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You see, when we've forgotten the gospel and its grandiose good news and lose awe and wonder in who God is and what he has done, we actually have nothing to offer our brothers and sisters that are caught in sin. Well, thankfully, Paul's going to show us a third way. And this third way is the right way forward for those who care about other people caught in sin in real life discipleship. When we're living life together, we need a gospel-drenched way forward that continually reminds us of good news. In Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Paul is giving us a remedy that we ourselves need before we minister to anybody else. Verses 1 and 2 says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The first thing we notice in this third way forward is that it's full of gentleness. Gentleness is a lost art in Christianity, in my opinion. It is something that was for decades and centuries the mark of a Christian brother or sister. And now we love to download all, download all these apologetic guys who are just angry and right all the time, and we miss this gentleness that walks people like our shepherd did before us. Gentleness comes from a person who understands themselves that they still sin and need Jesus themselves. We see this in the second part of the third way forward. Paul tells us to keep watch on ourselves, lest we too are tempted. You see, Paul has something, I think, rattling in his head that Jesus had said during the Sermon on the Mount as he's calling people to keep a watch on themselves, lest they too be tempted. Matthew 7, 3-5 records Jesus when he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, when we rightly can remember our plight before God because of the mercy of Christ, we no longer see ourselves as better than anyone. And when we clear the log from our own eye, the first place we look, rather than our brothers' and sisters' sins, is at the glory of Christ. And when we have clear eyes to fix them upon Christ and His beauty, all of a sudden we want to restore our brothers and sisters who are caught in sin. And yet what's so crazy to me is that we who sin and know sin very intimately are so quick to either ignore or condemn others caught in sin. But what's even crazier than that is that Jesus, a man who knew no sin, would take on flesh and come and love sinners with gentleness. I can't believe that sometimes. Like he had every right 
to look upon us and say, that is the most vile thing that you can commit and walk away from us. But instead, he pressed in, and he did so with gentleness. He never once was caught in sin himself, but came to bear the burdens of his people. Philippians 2, 6-8 through describes Jesus coming from the highest point possible and stooping to the lowest level to get under the burdens of his people. Listen to what Paul says. It says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus couldn't bear our burdens from heaven. And so he, in his great humility, went low and lower and lowest to come underneath all of our burdens. On the last night of his life, Jesus begins to bear the burdens of his people as he enters the garden of Gethsemane. That word Gethsemane just means olive press or oil press, and it was a great trade industry for the people of Israel to crush these olives, collect all of the oil, and they sold it and made a ton of money. Even if you go there today into Israel, you go to the garden of Gethsemane, you see these oil presses throughout the garden. And the whole picture here is Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane, one of his favorite places to be and pray, is that this is a place where things get crushed. And as Jesus walks in and falls to his knees as he starts to realize what it's going to cost to bear the burden of his people, Luke uses the imagery of the press as he says this about Jesus in Luke twenty-two forty-four. It says, In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. As Jesus prays there in the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by all these oil presses, it's as if the burdens of the people that he came to bear is crushing so weightily and mightily upon his own shoulders that he starts to sweat blood. But this is only the beginning of what the Son of God must bear to restore us gently. The next day, as many know, he was hung innocently on the cross for his people the weight of all of our sins, past, present, and future, from Adam all the way to us today, and even his future people were upon his shoulders and his shoulders alone. Isaiah 53, 4 says it this way, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty of every single one of our sins upon himself. He saw his own people as his beloved bride, and he did not do so begrudgingly, but gladly with joy to restore us gently to himself. And you would think that would be enough. Like if Jesus finished there, no other man has ever done such a thing. We would think, praise be to God, all glory to him. Enough said. But as First Peter, or as Peter writes, not First Peter, there might have been a second Peter, and a third. Uh, he writes in First Peter 5, 7, commanding us, listen to the preciousness of this verse. 
casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. It's a command to cast all of these things upon Him. Why? Because He cares. This is great great news. This is the love of Christ towards sinners. This is the gospel that moves our hearts to such awe and wonder that when we catch others in their sins, we want to bear their burdens because we can't help but remind them of the fact that Jesus is still bearing burdens today. Not only did he do so for our sins once and for all, but he's saying, come to me and cast all of them upon me day in and day out. Now, if you're like me, you can hear the gospel on a Sunday morning like this, and you can be so encouraged, and you start to make these commitments to yourself, right? I'm ready to live for Jesus this week. I'm going to go out. I'm going to start bearing the burdens of all of my friends in the church, right? I'm going to really do a good job this week. But then Monday comes, you spill your coffee, your kids are on the floor screaming because their socks don't feel right, and every plan you had lined up for the week starts to fall through. But yet you might still be diligent and committed to bearing the burdens of your brothers and sisters. And so, despite all of the circumstances of the week, you commit to hanging out with a brother or sister that you enjoy. You long for a time of sweet fellowship with them, and as you're in their presence, they sin against you. By this time in the week, you're empty of gospel promises, and you're ready to unleash on them. The truth is, we're a forgetful people, aren't we? Well, as if it were not enough for Christ to live, die, and raise for us, and then still to commit to interceding for us, there's more. He told them on the night of his last meal with his disciples that he was going to send a helper. And who needs a helper more than us who are so forgetful? And this helper came to do two main ministries. There's more that he does, but I think two main aspects of the helper's ministry are shown in John 14 through 16. The first one, John 16, 8, tells us, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. God the Holy Spirit does not ignore our sin. Right? He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He convicts of it. We don't have to have that ministry ourselves. When we catch someone in sin, it's because the Holy Spirit's doing a work, right? So we don't have to have the business of being the convictors. But then second, John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit who dwells in us not only convicts of sin, but He also brings to mind all of the teachings of Jesus. He's about glorifying the Lord Jesus. And so when we catch a brother and sister in sin, we get to point them to Jesus. We get to remind them of the good news. And we likewise, who are forgetful, are reminded again of the good news. 
To summarize what the Holy Spirit's ministry really is, is this, the discipleship ministry of the church of bearing the burdens of one another is really carried along and empowered by the Holy Spirit, not us. He is in us and He is doing this among us. And as we live this way, we're actually obeying Paul's third way as we're dependent on the Holy Spirit to do these things. In doing so, we fulfill what Paul calls us to do in Galatians 6.2 when he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That phrase, the law of Christ, is explained a few verses earlier in Galatians 5.14 when Paul writes, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, I love this because within evangelicalism, there's a million opinions on discipleship, right? You need to live together. You've got to be together seven days a week. You need to call each other from work. You need to text when you're tempted. You need all these things. We have all these ways that it should be done and people want it to be done. But Paul is actually saying, you want to start somewhere and you actually want to fulfill the call to discipleship, love one another. Love one another. It simplifies discipleship down to the law of Christ, which is to love. Imagine if we started there. Right? Imagine if we just wiped the slate clean of all this discipleship stuff. Right? We don't get rid of the call to do it, but what if we started simple and said, I'm going to love. Let love be the agenda. Let love be that which I'm called to today, and I'm going to bear the burdens of my brothers and sisters. Matt mentioned I joined the Army uh, day after September 11th, which meant deployments and all kinds of fun adventures, the way the movies show it. Uh, I got to watch a lot of dear friends injured and killed. When you spend a year overseas with the same group of guys, you want to kill each other sometimes, and yet you love each other in ways that are hard to explain. You, you, it's hard to find that kind of fellowship in life. And as frustrating as these guys can be at times, when you see a fellow brother or soldier injured or bleeding out and screaming, you don't sit there and start thinking about, hmm, how should we deal with this? What would be the six proper... No, you react. You administer first aid as fast as you can. You carry that wounded person as far as you have to, and you get them on a medevac as quickly as possible. If soldiers who are united around this common purpose of defeating an enemy can bear one another's burdens in this way... How much more the church? What about a people who are united around a loving God who has forgiven their sins, who has given them the Holy Spirit, who has made them a family together, who has promised an eternity without suffering and sin? How much more should we bear one another's burdens? And yet we look at each other so offended sometimes. I can't believe you would do that to me. You would say such a cutting comment. Don't you know we're Christians? 
No. We're called to imitate our God, to love one another the same way we've been loved. I'm going to close with a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, pretty popular book. If you haven't read it, I would say spend the eight, nine dollars. It's a little 90, 100 page book called Life Together. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a Lutheran pastor during uh, the rise of Nazism and the reign of Hitler, and it was illegal for him to be a teacher in the seminary and to be a pastor, and so he took this group of men and kind of got off the grid and led this secret seminary. And he was living with these same guys all day, every day. They woke up, did devotions, and prayed together. Then they do normal things throughout the day, and then they'd close with devotions and prayer. And if you know about living with someone, uh, whether it's your spouse, your kids, a roommate, if you're in that kind of proximity for a long time, things get hard. Uh, and, and Bonhoeffer, he, he starts to set up the context of this quote. He talks about people who come into church with these, these dreams, that the church is just going to be this beautiful place. It's like the new heavens and new earth where everyone's accepting. We just love each other. No one sins. And Bonhoeffer's trying to cut the feet out of that daydream, cut the legs completely off of it. And he says this, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably uncomfortable because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. When the morning mist of dreams vanish, there he's talking about these beautiful hopes we have of the church. He says, when the morning mist of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of true Christian fellowship. So in Fusion Church, discipleship is messy. You will have to bear the burdens of one another, and I encourage you to do so with great joy and great gladness in the same way that Christ forgave you, because when you're the one caught in sin, you will want someone to bear your burdens and restore you gently. And in doing so, we live as a community that consistently, by our word and our deed, reminds one another of the forgiveness of Christ, the one who bore our burdens and continues to do so until this day. So if you want to get into discipleship, keep bearing burdens in your relationships. Amen? Let me pray.